Now Sarai, Abram's wife, was born, had borne him no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. And Sarai said to Abram, Behold now, the Lord has prevented me from bearing children. Go and go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. And Abram listened to the voice of Sarai. So after Abram had lived ten years in the land of Canaan, Sarai, Abram's wife, took Hagar the Egyptian, her servant, and gave her to Abram, her husband, and as, as a wife. And he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked with contempt on her mistress. And Sarai said to Abram, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, she looked on me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. But Abram said to Sarai, Behold, your servant is in your power. Do to her as you please. Then Sarai dealt harshly with her, and she fled from her. The angel of the Lord found her by a spring of water in the wilderness, the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarai, where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress Sarai. The angel of the Lord said to her, Return to your mistress and submit to her. The angel of the Lord also said to her, I will surely multiply your, multiply your offspring, so that they cannot be numbered for a multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are pregnant and shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. This shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone and everyone's hand against him. And he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are a God of seeing, for she said, Truly here I have seen him who will look after me. Therefore the well was called Bir Lahai Roy. It lies between Kadesh and Bered. And Hagar bore Abram a son. And Abram called the name of a son whom Hagar bore Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. Let me pray for supernatural uh, ability. Father, um, it's the first Sunday of Advent, I get a lot of my mind and heart in this text. Really, uh, I really didn't want, I wanted to skip it. And uh, then I realized how important it was to us. And uh, I pray for grace and a measure of your Holy Spirit that just guarantees that my words are, are gospel words, are words of life and light for my people and for me and for San Francisco. We thank you for your word in Christ. Amen. I, uh, I've known some pretty controlling people. Anybody married to somebody really, really controlling? Anybody want to put? No, you're not going to. You're not going to even admit it, are you? You're not even going to admit it because you know that controlling person wouldn't like it. Anybody brave enough? Anybody brave enough? No. I was reminded, uh, friends of mine, Tom and Mike, they uh, they they had their father had made millions, and and it was uh, well known in the family that he made a lot of money, although. Although it was a real problem because nobody knew how much money he had made. He was obsessed with control about the information, obsessed with his wealth in a way that was just really weird and weird and unhealthy. I remember the son talking to me and just describing, like, we don't even know what to do with the house because we know that cash and, and diamonds are stored everywhere behind the walls, under the steps, in the freezer, in the ice cube trays. It's everywhere. And 
he'll never tell us where it is. Because he wants what? Control. What had happened over the years is they were talking to me about it. It really, the relationship just deteriorated. And the father, as he got older, was insisting on uh, setting up trusts, like these really well-crafted, extraordinarily uh, controlling trusts over the money. So that even when he, because what was he afraid of? When he would die, what would happen? They'd take the money and spend it. So he, he developed all these trusts, and they would only set out a certain amount of money every year. And, every, and the sons were furious with their father. Because it quickly became apparent that, to the father and to the sons that the only reason they had a relationship was to figure out how to move this money. That was the big issue, how to move this money. Because the father wanted control, and so did the sons. And I remember talking to one of them, and he said, you know what, I'm just hoping, really hoping, I know it's really sad, I know it's evil, I'm just hoping that my mom dies first. My mom, I'm sorry, I hope my dad dies first, so that my mom survives. Because she will break the trust and give us our inheritance. It's kind of sad, isn't it? To hear a son yearning for the death of his own father so he can get the money? Because the father was so intense. I mean, it was crazy. And it was so funny, like, like the, the, the weird places people go. And this is the weird thing. This is a man who couldn't trust anybody. But in order to set up a trust appropriately, he had to set up a trustee, right? Somebody else. You know, in other words, there's no way out. Somebody else is going to make the decision about the money somehow, even based on his pre-printed guidelines. Control. Control. White knuckle. Control. <sighs> I see it all the time, and I see it in myself. So uh, that's what we're going to this text today. And that's what we're, I hope we'll, we'll see and we can talk a little bit about, uh, about today. So take a look at this text. And one of the things I want to do, one of the reasons we're in, of all places, Genesis uh, 16. Is it 16 or 17? 16. And one of the reasons we're here is because this is Advent. And what I wanted to do is I want to play with and kind of get our fingers dirty with with something the Bible talks about. And the Bible understands itself. It's kind of in a beautiful way. The Bible you have in your hands, you might not be familiar with it as a book, but it is unlike any source of information you've ever encountered before. And in fact, because of its, its inspiration, because of the way it's filled with the Holy Spirit, the men and women were able to speak and make no mistake in their speaking and writing. It's exciting. It's really unusual, nothing like it. And one of the stories about the Bible is the way it invites us to understand its own story. It gives us uh, interpretive, an interpretive matrix for understanding our own stories. And, and, and a lot of the stories in the Bible are about people trying to control things, believe it or not. That's a recurring issue. People trying to control, how do I get the promise God has given me? That's what's in this story. How do I get the promise that I know he said he would give me? Am I not entitled and should I not strive to obtain the promise? Yeah, maybe, maybe, maybe not. So the Bible gives us an interpretive grid itself. And that interpretive grid is to say that the stories and the people and the events of the Old Testament have a revelatory burden. They have what's called a typological. Ever heard of archetypes? Archetype, Jungian archetypes and things like that. The idea is, is that there are certain types 
there are certain recurring themes in all of human experience. Uh, um, uh, the woman who serves as a doctor, that's actually, that's actually a trope. It's a person. It's a kind of person. It's, there's a story to that in our culture. Um, uh, and, and, and anyway, it was all sorts of things like that. But the, this is saying that the stories, people, events of the Old Testament, which we're going to be in today, reveal Christ and his work in some fashion, some measure, some, some way. So we're going to explore that today. Because this today, you learn a new word, I hope, maybe not, maybe some of you word. We're going to look now for the next four weeks at theophanies. Can anybody tell me what a theophany is? Anybody tell me what a theophany is? Well, I, you're, you're saying it, Gina. Go ahead, go ahead and say it. Right, an appearing of Christ, that's a, a chi for Christ, an appearing of Christ before the incarnation actually, before the cross, before he comes to. So theophany, sometimes it's called a Christophany, but that just sounds like something that I would, I'd like that name, like Christophany. Anyway, so, so, You know, I thought, wow, this would be cool. I'll do a series on the first four theophanies in the Bible. And uh, why up the first theophany is not all that much fun to preach on? You see what I'm talking about right here in this text? Really? First Sunday of Advent? And we're turning to Genesis chapter 6. What does it say? 17? 16? 16? It 16. That's right. I don't have 17. 16 uh, about Hagar? Really, Chris? All right, I got some exciting stuff for you. Let's take a look at the text. What I'm going to do, this is my plan of attack. Uh, I am inviting you to read the Bible the way the Bible reads the Bible. Because I believe the Bible, this area of scriptures have a particular genius. And that they will teach you how to read them. Believe it or not. They will teach you how to interpret them. But, but, that's, but that claim, you can explore that claim and test it. And you will find it to be true. Thank you. But... Uh, what I want to do now, so we're, we're going to dive into the text, and what I'm going to do is just going to pull out things that, that will be helpful to you uh, from the original language, culture. There's actually some really cool things going on in the text here. Once I feel like we have a grasp of the story, because I know some of you have never read this before, once you know the story, I want to jump into some repentance we can get, get involved in. Who's ready to repent? You ready to repent? I know you are. I know you are. I know you are. I know you are. I'm debating whether I should pick up my notes or not. I'm having too much fun. All right. All right. I'm having too much fun. Let's go, let's go to the, let's, let's look at the, I need, I need a text. Somebody give me a text. Thank you. I need my glasses. I need my glasses. Oh, thank you. You're going to fit in really well here, Melissa. All right. All right. So let's take a look here. It's kind of fun, this narrative. Now we're in the story of the first person called by God, called from a far country. He was called, called to be a father of many nations. He is presently, as the story starts, somewhere in his 80s. And so is his wife. So the promise is looking a little slim. A little weak. All right. And because of that weakness, they knew the promise was there. They knew the truth had been delivered. They believed God. These were believers. But it wasn't coming fast enough. Some of you have a hard time with God being on time. All right. Well, read the story of Abraham and 
it will shut you up. All right, now Genesis 16. So let's beginning here. Now Sarah Abraham's wife, but born him no children. And uh, we, don't, we don't realize this stigma, but I've experienced there is still to this day a sorrow and a grief and a pain and a suffering that a barren woman still has to, to in our generation. Back then, it was greater than simply personal existential. It wasn't an existential problem only. What, what, what else was it? People made fun of you. People looked at you funny. People assumed God hated you. You were cursed. You were definitely not loved by God. You were less. It was cultural, it was religious, it was spirit, it was, just, it was bad if you didn't have kids. And Sarah said to Abraham, behold now, the Lord has prevented me from having children. Okay, interesting. You hear Sarah's, Sarah's a believer. She, she totally understands that the reason they haven't had children, even though God promised them, is what? Is because... Of God. I'm sorry, she had born no children. She had a female Egyptian servant whose name was Hagar. Sorry. So, go into my servant. It may be that I shall obtain children by her. She's trying to figure out a strategy. God said we're going to have kids. Let's make them. Obviously, I can't. Her womb's dead. Menopause is in the past. Menopause usually hits at the, at the, at the latest, in the 50s. And She's well past that. Sounds good. Abraham had just tried this. He had asked God if he could adopt Eleazar, his cousin, his nephew, uh, up in Damascus. And God said, no, out of your limb, out of your loins. Okay? Well, this, isn't, this is still his loins, right? So you, you, there's, Look, we all do this with God. We're all trying to figure out, like, what, what, we're all trying to read the fine print to see if there's some way we can, we, can, we can make a promise work better for us. Has anybody else ever done this? I do this. All right. So anyway, he's reading the fine print. Well, why not? Why not just my seed and skip skip Sarah? Obviously, this is Sarah's idea. Anybody want to venture a guess as to why Sarah, at this juncture, might want to put Hagar in her husband's bed? Not only to have a kid, what else might it do? What what might she want to prove to the world? It's his issue. Thank you. Do not miss this, guys. Do not miss this. Do not miss this because the story's about to get really, really human in a second. Because what does she do? Hagar gets pregnant out the gate. What well, proves a number of things. It's her problem. Abraham apparently is rather potent. It's not his issue. And now Hagar knows that she's got the upper hand. She is now the honored one. God has blessed her. And of course, what's the first thing you do when you get a leg up on somebody who's been your boss? What's the first thing you want to do? Maybe you're too disciplined to do this, Will. I don't think you would do this. But if you could do what you wanted and you were above your boss suddenly, it'd be awfully tempting just to tell him what to do. That's what happens. There's a role reversal. By the way, this role reversal is described in the scriptures as something even heaven and the earth cannot bear under. The way a maid will replace her master. It's usurping of everything. And it's not good. It is not a good choice. It is not a good decision. And it reeks of idolatry. Because where is she from? (sighs) She's from Egypt. 
isn't it? And the story suddenly becomes almost Shakespearean. Probably it becomes kind of Shakespearean in this quick moment that Sarah proposes Hagar. Hagar goes in. Oh, by the way, you notice the language she went into. Did you notice that language? That is um, language for uh, sexual intercourse in Hebrew. But it's not like what does it say when Abraham slept with his wife? What does it say when he when he slept with Sarah? Does anybody remember from a long time ago in your King James version? And Abraham what Sarah? He knew her in the biblical sense. And I remember chuckling as a kid. Did he know her in the biblical sense? <laughs> and making some stupid joke, right? Making some clean sex joke. But funny, going into her is not. It's it's it's, it's naked, isn't it? It's not. There's no knowing there. The Hebrew, the Hebrew lineage has been discarded. It's not, Abraham does not know Hagar. Abraham doesn't know Hagar. What does he do? He just goes into her. Very, don't miss these this language. Very crass, meant to be. This is just something he's doing. But notice how then it switches. And Sarah then blames Abraham as if this was his fault. This is my favorite part of the whole story because of how many times I have seen this played out in my own life. It was her idea, and I'm getting blamed for it. Has anybody else ever experienced this? <laughs> Thank you, Peter. <laughs> he wouldn't even say yes, just smiled and looked in fear at his wife. All right, so, so. And Sarah said to Abraham, verse 5, May the wrong done to me be on you. I gave my servant to your embrace. And when she saw that she had conceived, she looked at me with contempt. May the Lord judge between you and me. And Abraham said to Sarah. All right, so it's interesting. This is actually an echo of Genesis 3. It's very clever. Um, God comes. I mean, there's been a mistake. Who's, who's the first person blamed? Abraham. What does Abraham do? Blames Sarah. What does Sarah do? Blames Abraham. Blames his, blames his servant. And what's happening almost all the time in marriage, all that happens in our lives, what do we start doing when we get accused? Blame shifting. It's their fault. It's his fault. It's his fault. It, no, it's her fault. It's, it, it's somebody else's fault. And what's, what's beginning to arise here in the scriptures, and we're going to see it all the way through David and others, is a failure to launch when it comes to male leadership. It's just constant, constant theme in the scriptures. Women often are in authority in the scriptures, and it's in the absence of male leadership. Deborah is one of the great examples of that, the female judge. So this is, the, this is the fall, and it's meant to be like the fall, the ruin of man happening over and over again. It gets repeated over and over again, these stories. That's why there's still good stories today. People act like this now. And Abraham said to Sarah, behold, your servants and your power, do as you please. And of course, Abraham just doesn't even do anything. And then Sarah dealt heartlessly with her, and she runs away. Verse 7, we have the angel of the Lord. Now I'm going to make an argument now textually, if you'll walk with me into this text. One more, one more detail here. Yeah, it's coming up right here. And he said, Hagar, servant of Sarah. This is why I want to bring this up. You know, we have, we have a lot of literature from the ancient world. You know that? The ancient world, in fact, the literature doubles and triples all the time with good archaeological work. This is the only, this is the only time in all of the ancient world, in all of the literature from Babylon, Assyria, Mesopotamia, Iraq, all the way up until the time of Christ, for thousands of years, every evidence we have, and the pharaohs, on, the, on all the, this is the only time that a God 
addresses a woman by her first name. This is it. The only time it happens. It also happens to be the only time in the Old Testament where somebody names God on their own. There is such a weird, weird personal kind of investment in the way, and, and not only that, this is the first of the angel of the Lord in the Bible, which means this is the first, what? Theophany. And I'm gonna make the argument it's God because it's God, the angel of the Lord, several times it's God in the Bible. In the burning bush, it's the angel of the Lord. And listen to how he speaks. Hagar, servant Sarah, where have you come from where you're going? She said, I am fleeing from my mistress, Sarah. The angel of the Lord said to her, return to your mistress and submit to her. So far, this could be just an angel right there. But listen to this. The angel of the Lord also said to her, what? I will surely multiply you. Now, that's not an angel anymore. Angels don't multiply things. Angels don't have that sort of cosmic, sovereign, kingly control over genetic. <laughs> they don't have that. All of a sudden, if you're listening, you realize this is God speaking. She knows that too, because she names him. And she says, uh, uh, so in 13, so she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are a God of seeing. For she said, truly I have seen him who looks after me. Ooh, in this weird way, this is all over the Bible. All of a sudden, we're going to look at this today. All of a sudden, way, way out of here, like out of, all the way out of right field, this person comes in, a slave from Egypt. Nobody who cares who Hagar is. She's, but all the and she's the one named by God, called by him. She's the one who names him, and nobody else in the Old Testament ever does. It reminds me of Jesus, doesn't it? It's just like Jesus. I would say, even if this didn't show to be Jesus by the fact that it's a man speaking as a God, I would still wonder anyway, but you know why? Because this reminds me of the woman at the well. Jesus loves tramps. He does. He loves women who are just at their life. He loves them. He, he chases them. Hagar's just, Hagar's just the working girl. She's just, she's nobody. And then, this weird way, he offers a prophecy too. What was the prophecy? Do you notice it? This text is so amazing. Behold, you are pregnant, so you'll bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael, which means God hears, because the Lord has listened to your affliction. He shall be a wild donkey of a man, his hand against everyone, and everyone's hand against him, and he shall dwell over against all his kinsmen. So tell me, tell me please, if you will, who are the descendants of Ishmael? The Arabic world. Take another look at this text then, and you tell me if this has any, any applicable, anything applicable today. This is applicable today, right now. You better believe it is. This prophetic utterance, this, this prophetic address to a woman about an unborn baby is what? A descriptor of a conflict that we endure and struggle with, a kind of people 
3,000 years later. No, almost four. All right, so far the power of God's word. What do I want to do with this? I want to kind of get you excited looking at the text and thinking about the text properly. Why is this text in there? Why is it included? Why is it so necessary for the writer of Genesis to include this story about Ishmael and Hagar? So we're going to begin with the very first thing I want you to understand or grasp or move towards that this text and all of the Bible is telling you. It's a brute fact that you have to come to grips with. It's a brute fact that I I will not apologize for. And that is, God is the sovereign king and he controls all things. Follow this, follow this. They know. See, we don't, we don't get it. We don't have. Who's our most natural enemy in America, really? Canada? No. We can, we can, we can take Canada anytime we want. Uh, no, we, I mean Russia. Russia's been, for like a century, Russia's been well, like some of an arch enemy in the wings. This is like a story. Telling us in the birth of our country, imagine God spoke to George Washington, which he didn't. Um, but imagine, it's be like us humming a story about how God created Russia. Why would that, why would, what purpose would it be for us? And I say we're the ones who believe in God and Russia doesn't. That's fine, just do it that way. But God says, I created Russia when this, when this union happened between Ivan the Terrible and so and so, or something like that. It doesn't matter who it was. And there was a prophecy about Russia would be a, a quiet monster that wanted to conquer the world through communism. I don't know. Yeah, I'm, just, I'm not making it up. But what would be the point of the prophetic utterance for us? I want you to capture what it is for them. What is God saying? I created your enemies. That's the point of this. This is really early in the Bible. The entire identity of the Jewish people is being created by these stories. What's one of the most important stories that has to be on display? God saying, I am the king of what? Kings. You ever think about what king of kings must mean? <laughs> to be the king of kings means that kings do what? You tell what he tells them to do. And around the game here, that what I'm talking about and I'm advertising for is that the theophany is the first revelation of the kingship and lordship of Jesus Christ. It's out the gate door, out the door presentation. In other words, him as a man, speaking as a man, identified, speaking as God, identified by, by Hagar as God, acting with divine authority. This is Jesus. Jesus is what? King. So the sovereign, the idea of sovereignty is that God has so complete a control over all the courses of human events and your personal life and, and great empires and the, how the blood is streaming through your veins. And look, and I'll put it this way, as, one, as Sproul put it years ago, a favorite teacher of mine, if there's one atom, if there's one atom near Saturn right now that is not under the direct, immediate, absolute control of God, 
then nothing is under his control. It's all or nothing when it comes to sovereignty. Now, I don't try to try, try to just necessarily terrify you or confound you or anger you or, or get... This, this doctrine does all those things. It can do all those things. I don't think it's meant to. Because in the people that know God, who trust him, this is one of those ways of saying, it's good that God loves me, but boy, sure is it great that he can do something about it and does. Amen. I don't want love in an abstract to you. I don't want love promised and merely promised to you. No, I want love available. And the idea that love is what is available at the sub-quantum level and about what happens at the VA this week <laughs> and over Trump and over ISIS. So what do we do right here? What's, what's, what's the application of this God being complete control right out the gate? I just stop being afraid. I, I know I give in to fear all the time. We're afraid of ISIS, terrorism, maybe being alone. <laughs> Not getting what we hope from God. We're all in this timeline. Sarah and Abram are on a timeline. And in their own head, their timeline's not moving fast. How many feel like your timeline's not moving fast enough? We've all been here. Yeah, thank you, Melody. We've all been here. And, and, and so right out the gate, what we're learning from, and why the story here, and why the theophany winds up having so much convicting power is portraying God as the king of kings and promising Jesus as the king who comes and makes a, makes a, what does it say? I should, what, what, what's he going to make the earth? What, what is, what kind of furniture is all of the earth to Jesus? A footstool. We don't even use footstools anymore, do we? A step ladder. <laughs> what else do we use? We use, uh, huh? <laughs> An ottoman, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> The world is his ottoman. I love it. So out the gate, it's just, a, and I know there's a, there's a there's an element in the human heart that that resists and fights and wants to accuse. Because the question is, if God is good, then why does He let these bad things happen? Or I am not satisfied. And you're, a lot of us have experienced the Hagar crisis. Where is this fulfillment? And I know that. I know that. But let's not do for our friends and one another what Abraham did of just letting her run amok. All right, God is in control. What's the second point out of this then? God is in control and you aren't. (laughs) Um, Synergism. So one of the things I, I worry most about is synergism. Now, the place where synergism is most deadly is in whether you are, have been transformed by God or not. Don't follow me here. God is sovereign. He is the king. Now, this, in, this, in, this, in this scene that we're here, it's Hagar and Sarah, something else is going on. So there's another story underneath here. What's that other story? Um, Romans 4 tells us that Abraham believed God. And what did he believe about God? That he could take Sarah's empty womb, a dead womb. At 99, the womb is dead. And out of a dead womb, what would come? A son. His name would be Isaac. You know what Isaac means, by the way? 
Laughter! And it's, it's onomatopoeia. Yitzhak. <laughs> That's what it sounds like. Yitzhak. It's like a cackle. I should never, ever go down rabbit trails like that. What was I just talking about? <laughs> Uh, oh, okay, 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 I'm there, okay, I'm there. So, uh, Hagar is trying, I'm sorry, Sarah is trying to make the promise happen. So what she has decided to do is join in in the process of making it happen. But what, what process is she, is she thereby sabotaging? God revealing what he would do in Jesus that's why this is so important. What am I talking about? Because Jesus is in this text, right? Except it's this mysterious, theophanous, Christophanous picture, right? No. He's also in the text where Sarah's womb. He is the great, 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 great times 30 or 40 begetting greatness. Great, 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 great grandson. Who's his great, 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 great grandson? Who is the great, 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 however many greats we need, grandson of the son born out of a dead womb? Jesus Christ, who rises out of a dead tomb. It's the God who calls things that are not as though they were. Romans 4, 24. I wanted you to go into this. 16, somewhere in there. Um, He is the God who calls things that are not as though they were. So what is happening, you barely see it. Sarah's unbelief is actually going to what? It's going to take the train off the tracks of a revelation of the abundance and the beauty and the power of God to take dead men and give them new life, to take dead men and raise them up, to take dead souls and make them anew, and the advent of all of his power to save. So, you see, that's why it's in here. Not only does it show that Christ is king over the kings, it's to also demonstrate and to protect. There's no other way to get into the kingdom by there's no way by synergism. What would synergism promise? It's you and Jesus. Or it's you and God cooperating. You just need to get on God's program. And God will get you there. And you know what? God helps those who help themselves. I'm so glad I can come to church on Sunday. Because I feel like that guarantees the partnership. Anybody ever do this? I mean, we all do it. <laughs> so no God will you know what? I've got a big deal coming up this Sunday. I should probably go to church. Has anybody ever done that? Has anybody ever done that? Well, maybe I should start praying this week. Or, do you ever find yourself increasing your devotional life because you have a big deal, big meeting coming up, and it might be a promotion in it? I know we do this stuff. We make all these tacit bargains with God. We're always trying to figure out you know, and what those are, what they represent are all the ways in which we think or imagine that we can contribute to this relationship and make it happen. What does, what does a sovereign God mean? You cannot create anything to rescue yourself. It is all free because he's king. And it, he doesn't need to be paid. He refuses to be paid because he's the king. And the promise in this story is that dead women rise. And, but it gets even more beautiful. Because we just follow a story of absolute sovereignty. It's on display across thousands of years of history with predictive power that actually describes whole people groups today. 
And then we go on from there to say, look, we're being invited into the freedom of grace. There is nothing you can do to be saved. There's nothing you can do to enter heaven. You must receive his grace. And that's what we're looking at John. Receive, receive, receive. What does that, what does that language mean? Except, stop trying to save yourself. Stop that burden. But what's the final part of this? The, the part that just, oh, it gets me so excited. Is the way Hagar comes from the outside. She comes from outside the story, outside the lineage of Jesus. And God, if you look, the angel Lord is seeking for her. God, she chases her. Why? I drew the analogy to the the, the, the uh, woman at the well in, in, Rome, in John 3 in John 3 Jesus meets Nicodemus Nicodemus is like the dean of Harvard of his day he's a really important guy and Jesus tells him that he can't even see the kingdom of heaven just pretty much ridicules him not meanly but he's just telling him he doesn't know anything doesn't tell him who he is Talks, we're going to look at it when we read it. Talks in riddles around Nicodemus. Never tells his disciples for years who he is. But the lady at the well, the small town tramp, he tells her he's the Messiah. Why does God do this? Why does God just, out of nowhere, just love all over somebody who is really has nothing to do with the story. <laughs> like, why does it go out there? Wait, what, what's going on? Well, guess what? God chased Sarah so that you as a Gentile can say what? I know God works outside his people because he made me his people. And there's a wonderful promise in Hagar in the way she is loved, the way she is chased, the way she is brought in to promise, the way she is, she is a part of the family. Even though it's a covenant family and she kind of gets the blessings by just being there and Ishmael's going to get circumcised. He's probably going to wish that his mother had made, it, made, made good and gotten away. But, uh, but what we're present here for is the God who loves the outcast. Who becomes the outcast himself. Who himself goes outside the camp. The God who chases. And this is the God who comes to San Francisco and starts planting a church. Like, does that make sense? Like, that's the God who's chasing after a woman who's, who's doesn't even know him. And not only does he not, does he chase her, he honors her. And calls her by name. Not only does he honor her by name, he receives from her a name. And you, what, do you, what do you have here? The blessed intimacy is for the king, the sovereign king, a part of his sovereign power is to go get folks, bring them in that you and I wrote off. And let's face it, some of us know we should have been written off. And God didn't write you off, did he? No, he chased you. <sighs> You're not walking into the story. Now, it's a Christmas story. It's an Advent story, isn't it? The king has come. Did you notice in George of the Earth, George of the World, how many times it talks about his kingship? The Savior reigns. He rules the world with truth and grace and makes the nations prove. Yes, 
So when we, this is Advent season, this is my parting encouragement then. Your control over your life has not created a whole lot of good things. And I suspect that every attempt at control you've had has destroyed your family like this one. You notice everybody gets destroyed. Abraham and Sarah are estranged. Sarah and her, her maidservant are estranged. Can you imagine what dinner was like, like the next night? It must have sucked. It must have been awful. You ever had dinner when, when the family's fighting? It's awful. You can't even eat. This picture, you know, Abraham with like this fig halfway in his mouth, singing, why the heck didn't I, did I ever say yes to my wife? Why did I, I probably thinking things like, really? I mean, why did I even marry this woman? She's crazy. This was actually where the, 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 the term cray-cray was first invented. <laughs> Sounds really crazy. It's cray-cray, isn't it? Hey, honey. Hey, Mary. Have sex with my mistress. You jerk! <laughs> I just, look, let me tell you something. This is so accurate about family and dynamics, it's not even funny. And if you don't know what family dynamics are like this, then you're just not paying attention. But no. He is king over family dynamics. He marches. He's like, I'm king of kings. Uh, you guys, don't, be, don't fear ISIS. You know why you shouldn't be afraid of ISIS? I know why. Because he's saying here in this passage, I made ISIS. Don't worry about it. I'm control. I know these people. I made them. You know, I know some of you have questions. Whoa, 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 whoa. Wait a second, wait a second. Syrians, Babylonians, Persians. All right. This was meant to comfort them that God was in control. What's the next part? Stop trying to help God. You're not here to help God. He doesn't need your help. Sign up 100% to do all that he asks and says. Sure, that's what we're supposed to do. But trust him with what? 100%. Don't fear the loss of job. Don't fear Trump. Don't fear ACLU. I pick your poison. What are you afraid of? Because God's got a story about how he started every one of those and let them flourish. To do what? To ultimately accomplish his will and prove that only he can save. We can't save ourselves. And finally, what's your final encouragement? Maybe you feel isolated today. Maybe you feel like an outcast. I know I do. We live in a city of outcasts. Don't you love this picture? Don't you love this picture that we together are like Hagar and the city is like Hagar and and uh, and in this beautiful way the gospels come here and our church is being planted and our church being planted is the angel of the Lord coming into our lives not, not, I'm not the angel you're not the, but it's like the angel of the Lord coming into our lives does anybody else feel this way and just, just rescuing outcasts chasing us by name and loving on us so give up control and turn to the grace of Jesus Christ, which we'll celebrate in that table and describe in his blood. Let's pray. Our dearest Father, thank you for giving us images of your son even before he was born, because he was always your son. He was always from eternity past, very God of very God, and we know this. But what a joy we have that he chases pregnant women across the desert and blesses them. And uh, I pray it chases outcasts. 
especially when the people of the kingdom are acting all self-righteous and difficult and mean. And yet still he saves. You save. I praise you. I praise you for the gospel, the gospel promise that you are interested in those outside your covenant promise, outside the gospel line. Oh, it's been so clear. That's so many of us have no, 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 no Jewish traits in us, no Jewish blood. But we claim the promise because you chase the people outside, the outsiders. Chase San Francisco, we pray. Chase the people we love. Make us this kind of church in the city. In Jesus' name, amen. On the night he was betrayed, our Lord Jesus Christ took bread and having broke it, said, this is my body which is broken for you, take and eat. And in the same way, he also took a cup of wine saying, this is my blood shed for the forgiveness of sins, take and drink. So often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. Materially and immediately, one of the things I love about these narrative stories is that your faith doesn't mean anything until it hits the road, until it gets into your family stuff, until you're living it out. Well, that's why he gave us wine and bread. So it would be this immediate. It would be real life. He knows we live in a real world, so he wants you to know how real his love is. So I want you to look at the table and the wine and the bread and the wine. And I want you to see Jesus. Just the way I tried to show you Jesus in the story, I want you to see Jesus in this. This is Jesus saying, I am giving you everything as the king. This is saying when you eat this, because you don't bring any other food with you to the table, I'm only going to be fed by Jesus for my salvation. So come to the table if you know If you're an outsider, an outcast, an outlier, lonely and afraid, but you know Jesus, come in from the cold and get your vittles. Thank you, Elizabeth. And uh, I can't believe she's Presbyterian. She was clapping. I should never, ever make jokes like that. Um, so as I want to make a very open invitation to those who know Jesus. I want, to, I want to shove a door in your face, though, if I could. If you think you're a good man, or if you think you're a good woman, then you are not worthy of my Father's table. And I would ask you to abstain. And look for the moment when you know what it is to be a sinner. Because only sinners are welcome at my Father's table. Sinners whose trust and faith is in Jesus. If you're a skeptic and you're watching and, and in your heart, you know, you don't really believe these things, but it's kind of interesting. Maybe you're an anthropologist just studying us. I don't know. That's fine. It would be an interesting study, I think. Um, if, you're, if you don't believe, watch. And I hope you'll be provoked to, to envy. Envy of people who know their God this way. All right. Here's the drill. Uh, which one's grapefruit juice? Juice. Juice and wine. Juice and vino. This is easy to remember because wine is always right. Juice is always wrong. Sinister. Sinister. It's always sinister. All right, so... I don't even know why I say the things I say sometimes. Let's stand.
During the Apostles' Creed, we will recite, the, we will say the creed to one another. After the creed is done and we are in song, will you come forward, get wine and a gluten-free cracker and go back to your seat and we will have communion together as one people. Um, tell me, Christian, brother and sister, what do you believe? I believe in God the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth. And Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, died, and was buried. He descended into hell. And the third day he rose again from the dead, and descended into heaven, and is seated at the right hand of the God the Father Almighty. From there he shall come to judge the living and the dead, I believe in one spirit, the holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen.